Here we are, episode eight, take eight. <laughs> episode eight, and we're happy to have you guys here again this week. Yes. I'm Bailey. I'm Beth. And we can be found on Instagram at True Crime BNB. And I wanted to add that we have new listeners in Romania. Oh, I didn't know that one yet. As of about three or four days ago. Interesting. Okay, so we're worldwide now. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if only we could get Canada on board. If only I could stop shit-talking Canada. (laughs) (sighs) So what are you doing this week? This week I have a little bit of a puzzle for you. Okay. We're going to go to California for my story this week. Usually mine are in California. I know. I was like, wow. I don't know why I have so many stories in California. Yeah, and you're always like, I don't know anything in California. (laughs) (laughs) And then you're like, well, my stories are 10 stories from California. I haven't even been to California. I haven't been any more west than like Las Vegas. So anyway, (laughs) in California, this took place in 2011. But I'm going to first tell you the background of the people involved in this. So we have Rebecca Maui Zahau. She was born in, on March 15th, 1979 in Chin Hills in north, northwestern Burma. Okay. It kind of seemed like her parents were like active in like government type of thing. So they were moving around from country to country. She actually ended up living in Germany and Nepal throughout her life. But sometime in her early 20s, around 2000-ish, she ended up moving to the U.S. During that time, she moved to Arizona. She married a nursing student named Neil Nalapa in 2002. And during that, she also worked as an ophthalmolic technician. So they got together, got married. Then in 2008, she ended up beginning an affair with a man named Jonah Shacknai. So it was questionable if they were kind of separated but still married at this time because they had been married for about six years at this point. Okay. So you're not sure if she was still married or together. I don't know if it was actually an affair or if it was like... If they were already separated. They were separated just living together and then she started dating Jonah. Okay. But in December 2010, she actually quit her job at the ophthalmolic center and she eventually filed for divorce from her husband in February of 2011. So she'd been dating at this point Jonah Shaknai for about two, three-ish years. Okay. So, a little history on Jonah. Jonah was born in 1957, so he was 22 years her senior. Yeah. However, he was very successful. He had previously served as the chief aide to the U.S. House of Representatives and founded um, something called Illustrious Pharmaceuticals and then eventually also founded the Medicis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Medicis? 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 I think it's it's Medicis. I've never heard of it. Yeah, I can see it. I can see the word. Medicis, yeah. So he founded that and he was the CEO. In 2010, so while he was dating Rebecca... He brought in a total of $6.4 million, making him the ninth highest paid CEO in Arizona. But a lot of her family said she wasn't really that type of person. She wasn't like a yeah. going after money type of person. So I don't think that's why she was with him. But a lot of people say that's... Yeah, I mean, it. it's not like a downfall if a guy has a lot of yeah. money. But I would never date somebody just because they had money. Yeah, for sure. So there, there was definitely more to it, I think. <laughs> Yeah, Obviously. I hope so. So he had two prior marriages. First to Kimberly James, who he had two children with, but they were like in their later, like early 20s-ish during this time. Oh, yeah. So a little, like about her age. Yeah, so about her age. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they were kind of not living with him or with her. Um, and then he had Dina Romano, who he had previously been married to, and they together had one son who was born in 2005 named Maxfield Aaron Shockdye. 
Okay. Um, so that's going to become important because Max is going to live with Jonah and Rebecca. Okay. So Jonah also had a summer home in Coronado, California, which he referred to as the Spreckles Mansion. The Spreckles Mansion? It's called the Spreckles Mansion. There's something wrong with that name and it just... It just doesn't feel right, right? It I don't, Something about it. I don't know. It's like a five-year-old named it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so then... Fast forward to July 11th, 2011, in the Spreckles Mansion. It was their summer home, so they were vacationing there for the the, um, season. Rebecca was home alone with her teenage sister, Zena, who had been visiting from Missouri, and Jonah's son, Max, who was six at the time. Okay. While Rebecca was in the bathroom, she heard a commotion coming from the hallway, only to come out to the hall to find that Max had somehow fallen from the second floor banister. Oh, wow. And just for reference, I included a picture, which I will include on our Instagram. This is the banister that he fell from. So you can see the first floor down here, it comes up and then it goes in kind of a square pattern, comes up to the second floor mm-hmm. and he fell from the top. Okay. And he went all the way to the... He went all the way to the bottom. Okay. So her sister called 911 while Rebecca attempted to like tend to him, see if he was breathing, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The police paramedics and EMTs came and he was not breathing and unresponsive by the time they arrived, but he was taken to Rady's Children's hospital and he suffered injuries to his spinal cord and facial bones suggesting that he went over head first wow that seems suspicious yeah he actually he did not die he remained in critical condition at this point what's his age again six good grief okay so on july 12th the day after rebecca dropped her sister Zena to the airport and picked up her brother and not brother-in-law because they weren't married but jonah's brother sorry the uncle of max okay adam shackney from the airport got it and jonah remained at the hospital with his ex-wife dina who was the mother of his son they were just obviously staying with their son well, max sure. who was in critical condition mm-hmm. and they would occasionally leave the hospital to kind of recuperate at the ronald mcdonald house that was local just to kind of take a nap take a shower stuff like that and then come back right but other than that they never left the hospital this entire time so then on july 13th at this point only rebecca and jonah's brother adam were in the house um at around 6 45 a.m adam shacknight came across the body of rebecca hanging from the second story balcony in the backyard of the mansion what mm-hmm. he called 911 at 6 48 a.m then shortly after he sent a text to jonah which apparently was during the phone call to 911 so he like was on the phone call was probably on speaker and sent a text to Jonah saying, I found your girlfriend. I don't know what happened. So before help could arrive, he cut her down because wanted to resuscitate her, stuff like that. Okay, so he, it wasn't, so she he, wasn't clearly dead to him or anything. He didn't know. It was kind of like, I found a body and obviously if it's somebody you know and care about, you're going to cut her down. Like whether they're dead or not, you're just going to be like, I don't want to be hanging. <laughs> right. It appeared to be a suicide. Wow. So police arrived and medics attempted to revive her, but she was pronounced dead at the scene. Wow. She was. This is where it becomes really foggy. However, the way she was found, she was completely nude, except for a long sleeve t-shirt wrapped around her head with the sleeves double knotted and stuffed into her mouth to gag her. And her wrists were tied behind her back and her ankles were bound with the same kind of rope. That's so bizarre. They also found tape residue. And that's residue. a suicide. Yeah, and they everybody's assumed so far it's a suicide. So they also found tape residue on her legs. And once they started investigating the couple's room, because they were like, this seems a little bit more than a suicide, they went upstairs and investigated. And on the door leading out to the balcony, 
somebody had painted in black paint, she saved him, can he save her? Which is up for debate still to this day. We don't know exactly if that was a suicide note, if that was somebody, the murderer who did this. We don't, that's she like, saved him. Can he a save lot of people her? said maybe she saved Max, the son, and then can Jonah save her in time before she dies? Yeah. I don't know what to make of it, honestly. I just so, okay, so, okay. I'm still with you, so continue. Okay. So the police... <laughs> just processing. Yeah, police then brought in forensics, and they were not able to find any DNA other than Rebecca's in the room or on the ropes. And I assume that probably also included some of Jonah's DNA, because it's also his bedroom. Like, yeah. I yeah. assume he's probably in there somewhere, but they probably were like, nothing that had to do with her death had Jonah's DNA on it. Okay. On July 16th, so um, Rebecca was found dead July 13th, but on July 16th, Max passed away in the hospital because of brain damage caused by the oxygen deprivation from his injuries. Um, it was ruled an accident and they kind of studied the banister and things like scuffs leading up to the banister. They had a dog at the time that he had tripped over the dog and somehow fallen over the banister by himself. So it did end up being ruled an accident. But then Rebecca's autopsy came back. Um, she had, in the first autopsy at least, they found four instances of head trauma, investigators concluded that she must have, like, hit her head on the way down. Okay. Because it was, like, maybe she slipped off the banister, hit her head on the banister, and then hit her head again on the, like, concrete leading downward. Four times? But four times is weird, right? Yeah. And then, on September 2nd, 2011, so only a couple of months after her death, it was formally announced to be a suicide by the San Diego County Sheriff's Department. And one thing I found suspicious, also in the first autopsy, Rebecca had been on her period and had no tampon and was found fully naked. What woman, do you know, is going to commit suicide on her period and choose to be hanging fully naked for view of all of the neighbors? Uh, that doesn't there's nothing about this that intuitively speaks to me as oh yeah if i were if i were feeling that way that's what i would do that's the thing the police will argue in this case time and time again to the end of it they will say find some way to explain everything like oh her ankles and wrists were bound behind her back well maybe she did that and they've like even had a police a female police detective like go in and like recreate it and video of that and showing that you can do it but they said well a lot of people do that so that if they have second thoughts after they jump or like are hanging there they won't try to climb back up or like undo what they've done and I, it just doesn't make sense to me why would you go that far why would you gag yourself with a t-shirt so that you can't call for help if you're following their Possibly, logic but, but- it's just- if you're gonna go to all that trouble, why are you gonna be naked? Why are you naked? Why? Are Unless you... she's a nudist, and that's just the way she's comfortable. It, but it, but exactly. the whole it's, none of it adds up. Like yeah, there's a chance, a sliver of possibility that maybe this was a suicide. I just I will admit it that it sure doesn't ring very true though. Just statistically, it doesn't add up to what suicides have been in the past. Just, just emotionally, it doesn't. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I can't. I know. So, as we're saying here, her family, it did not sit right with her family. Of they course. They came back and said, I know that the police have ruled this as a suicide, but we're not comfortable with that. We don't think it was. So, they ended up launching a website on September 7th, so a couple days after they announced it was a suicide, called justiceforrebecca.org. 
And they did this in order to kind of get donations to start their own investigation, hire, hire private investigator. investigators, hire mm-hmm. a doctor to perform a second autopsy, stuff like that. Yeah. Um. So they did have a second autopsy performed by Dr. Cyril Wecht, and in that he found fractures in her throat were consistent with manual strangulation, not hanging. And they also found evidence because that, it would be lower instead of higher upon your. And head. it was and it was more like multiple fractures rather than if you were he- you were like one. Mm-hmm jolt to the neck right. would be like maybe one fracture in the front, but just didn't add up. So he also found evidence that Rebecca had actually been sexually assaulted. So that would add up to why she maybe was completely naked if they just ran out of time and threw her over, like, you know? Yeah. So after that, the police came back and they decided to investigate a little bit further. So they served AT&T, which was her phone plan at the time, a warrant for cell phone records. And they found from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock the night before she was found, she had been texting her other sister, Mary, about her younger sister's return home, saying that, like, oh, she got back from the airport, she's safe and home, stuff like that. And then at 10.48 p.m., she also received a text from, it was her stepson Max's mom, who was at the hospital at the time with Jonah. Okay. It was her sister, Nina. Okay, so it's Jonah's ex-sister-in-law. Yes. So okay. it's Jonah's ex-sister-in-law had had texted her at 10.48 p.m. saying she wanted to stop by the house and talk about the accident that happened with Max. And it was um, reported that Rebecca never responded to that text message. So at 12.50 a.m., it was noted that Rebecca had checked her voicemail and listened to a message, but the message was mysteriously never recovered, and they had no way of finding out who had left the message. Okay. Which seems suspicious. That doesn't seem like... A wee bit dodgy. Uh, Yeah. So... In October, the investigators said that they had found no additional information from looking into this stuff further and returned the phone to Rebecca's family. So that was all in like 2011, 2012. Since then, her family has filed multiple lawsuits against the police in charge of this, trying to uncover information. In February 2018, the family filed a lawsuit against Adam, the brother who was there at the time of Rebecca's death. And in April of that year, jurors voted 9-3 to that Adam was in fact liable for Rebecca's death. However, that just came to mean that Adam had to pay them money. That, that's it. <clears throat> there was no criminal action against him. He just had to pay them. It ranged from 600000 to like $5 million. I don't know exactly what he paid them. But, so in the in the civil lawsuit then, was, was there evidence presented that, like, proved that he was actually involved? Or, that stuff, or were they just saying, well, you were in the house? That's what's so infuriating about this case is because Jonah, the boyfriend who was, like, at the hospital this entire time, he is a lawyer. Like, he went to school early on to be a lawyer, and he has a lot of lawyer friends, and he's rich, obviously. So, so much stuff is just covered up and hidden. Like, they can't publicly put out the case files and stuff. So, like... Literally none of, this is all that's available on the internet that I could find. So in December of 2018, the Sheriff's Department agrees to relook at the case after this lawsuit was proven to be liable, Adam was liable in Rebecca's death. But eight months later came back saying they stand by their original conclusion that it was in fact a suicide. So again, in 2021, the family filed a lawsuit against the Sheriff, Bill Gore, for not disclosing documents that could be helpful in the case. He was only um, making available to the public and the family the documents that supported his conclusion of suicide. He was right. not conclude he was not providing anything on the autopsy. A lot of them were like the statements were redacted. It's like institutionalized confirmation bias. Right. It's just literally saying, Oh, this is what proves it, but they're not saying anything that could contradict or maybe say he was wrong. Or they're not even 
saying that there could be anything that they aren't right, showing they're not you even that making it available to the family and they have lawyers and stuff on their side saying we have the right to have this and the sheriff's office just saying oh we already provided that but they didn't so it's wow. just to this day they keep saying oh we provided it and the family's saying but you didn't so can you just send it again if you already provided it and they're saying no we already provided it so it's so frustrating this is so dirty i know so something about this is just wrong and i don't know exactly what it is if it's the sheriff's office if it's jonah if it's adam i don't know but something about this is saying something knows somebody knows more than they're willing yeah something is not right here something like if i get it accidents happen and suicides happen maybe she a lot of people said maybe she was so guilty about max being injured on her watch and i get that and maybe she was depressed like she had just quit her job maybe she was depressed and having a period of darkness and this was the last straw i get that maybe then you commit suicide but i don't understand all of the circumstances of the suicide on top of all of that not to mention her ex-husband came forward later and said none of this makes sense even the the police went so far to say this is such a stretch so you know how that weird saying she saved him can he save her was written on the back of the door mm-hmm. the police went so far in their absolutely determination to say that this was a suicide to say oh well She was an artist in her spare time. She liked to paint. So obviously, in her last moments, she decided to take the paintbrush and write this out in an artful way. I'm sorry, my mom likes to paint. But if I found her naked hanging from something with something gagged in her mouth, and all the evidence was she committed suicide because she likes to paint and there was a suicide note written in paint on her door, I would be like, still questioning that. That doesn't mean anything. it's just so murky. Everything is so, so murky. And and the fact that the sheriff's office is acting as if they're cooperating with the family and yet mm-hmm. they're inhibiting them their ability to get any any more information. And it's so Did, sad. Ten years later, this is still ongoing. There's no final ruling in Well, there lawsuit. was a final ruling. It was there, just the same as the first one, right? Right. They just keep coming back to, no, we were right in the, fir- the first time. It was suicide. What was the result? Did the family actually get a private investigator? They've had multiple private investigators. They've hired people all over the spectrum that can okay. help out possibly lawyers. They've hired doctors. They've hired just forensic people to come in and look at the scene and stuff. And there's nothing. And like, the result of those, the opinions of those people that they hired was? that they this weren't getting all the information? Yeah, they said okay. there's everything points to this being a homicide. There's nothing about so the situation. So you have to wonder, why would the investigators not want to be forthcoming with a family who's mm-hmm. lost their child? Why would they... What would cause them to go to all this trouble to not be open with them and give them all the information they have? Because that family is never just going to say... Oh, well, never mind. It's not that big a deal. They're never going to say that. So I don't understand why they think this family's just going to give up, especially now that it's getting such, like, heat in the press and stuff. Yeah. I know you probably haven't heard of it yet, but now that it's going back into the court, it's like... It's a little bit more familiar to me now that I've heard you tell the story. mm -hmm. But I I didn't know very much about it. I just knew that that something had happened. It's... even though we don't know what happened necessarily, I don't know if it's a suicide. I can honestly say I don't know if it was a homicide. I don't know. But I think it at least look, deserves. Yeah. You have to be open to the idea that maybe it was. Right. Walk she in there ended saying, her own I life. don't know what happened. But you can't just say, well, we decided it's not, it's not a homicide, so therefore you don't get to investigate it as if it were. 
Yeah. Or as if it might be. Because that family deserves to know the facts of what happened. And whoever possibly might have had something to do with this deserves to be punished for that. They don't deserve to just keep walking around like, well, took care of the trash. Like, get to just live on my life now. No. Yeah. I'm just going to go out there and say, do you have any theories as to what might have actually happened? Now, I'm not saying, again, this is all in quotations what we possibly might think happened. I don't know, but if it seems like she was sexually assaulted, it sure seems like there might have been a male involved in Uh this. And there happened to be a new male in the house while the father of Max was away. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that person had some blame towards Rebecca for his nephew having that accident that he had. Yeah. And I have absolutely no evidence one way or the other. But if if I had to sit here and say what looks like the most likely way for this to have happened, Mm -hmm. that would probably be where my mind would go. Well, I will say um, it was later revealed that Adam and Dina, the mom of Max, were in pretty close. They had constant communication. So to me, the fact that not only was Adam in the house, the only person in the house, and tensions were obviously high at the time. Rebecca felt guilty about what had happened, and Adam obviously seemed to blame her, and the whole family seemed to blame her, considering the mother of Max, her sister ended up texting Rebecca saying, I want to come over and talk about what happened tonight. That is just so suspicious to me that that happened on the night that Rebecca just killed herself. Yeah. I just think maybe they together had something to do with this. I mean... Even if they, like, hired a hitman. I don't know. Like, it's just... I don't know either. And we don't have enough information. You know, the family can't get information. We certainly don't know anything that isn't already known. But it sure doesn't and look like a suicide. That's almost what's frustrating to me is, like, if that's the conclusion that everybody is coming to so far with what's available, how damning is what you're hiding? Yeah. That we, you, everything you've presented, we still say that's not a suicide. So what are I mean, you... The only, you know, I could see where Rebecca probably did have some guilt that -hmm. this happened while she was in the house with this little six-year-old kid. For sure. But it isn't as if Rebecca picked him up and threw him over the railing and nobody seems to even be saying they think she did something to him. Mm -hmm. So have you ever been around a six-year-old? Because you know what they're like. I mean, you step on a cat's tail and I feel guilty for the next, like, ten days. I can understand feeling guilty about that. Like, Unless you are sitting in a room with a Mm six-year-old staring at them. I mean, she was in the bathroom. It's not like she just went and locked herself in a room for two hours and left him on his own devices. Yeah. It was an accident, and it's a horrible accident. And the family's already obviously grieving over that, and I totally get that. But if she literally was doing the best she could to take care of him, you cannot sit and stare at a kid all day long to keep them safe. Right. So I I just, I don't know. This whole thing is so dirty and I just feel grimy. It sure feels dirty. After looking, yeah. It really does. It feels dirty. It feels like a cover up. If nothing else, even if it was a suicide, even if Max's accident was an accident, it's still sad. But what are the police hiding? Just release the damn documents and we'll all shut up. I promise if you release it all and we find nothing more that's intriguing, then we'll shut up. But they may, you know, may not still have the stuff that the family wants to see. Maybe they destroyed in a fire or something like that. Isn't that funny how often fires happen in the evidence room? Yeah, I don't understand. Good grief. That's really a sad story and 
it really does not, it does not look like she did it to herself. I'm hoping in the next couple months, like I said, this just happened in like late 2021 where it went back to court. So in the next couple months, if I have any updates, I'll keep you guys up to date, but... That's as far as we know. Well, poor Max. Poor Rebecca. Yeah, poor everyone involved in this. And I imagine know. the sister, how bad she feels. She's like, if I'd been there another day, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And it's not, I'm not saying that she in any way should no, it's take in any guilt on for it. But guilt that you just. Yeah. Survivor's what if I could guilt. have done, like, what could I have done differently? That's just, yeah. everyone's going to feel that. I mean, oh, awful. It's a terrible thing. All right. What do you got for me this week? All right. I only have one story this week. I'm okay. not going to drag you through five stories like oh, I usually do. This is a story, and you may have heard of her. Mm-hmm. Her name is Noella Rocundo. Have you ever heard her? Not ringing a bell yet, no. Okay. Noella Rocundo fell in love with Belenga Kalala in 2004 when both of them were new arrivals in Australia. She was from Burundi, and he was from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Okay. He had fled Congo because a rebel army had killed his wife and his young son when he was in his early 20s. Yikes. When Belenga was in his early 20s, not when his son was. Okay. So he arrived in Melbourne looking for a new life. They met. Noella and Belenga fell in love. They got married. And they had three more children in addition to the five that Noella had had from a previous relationship. Okay. So That's here a they lot are. of kids. Yeah. So here they are raising eight children. Jeez. Okay. In, in 2015, Noella's stepmother died in Burundi. And in her grief, she decided to travel home to help her family, pay her last respects, all that stuff, go to the funeral, do all the things that you have to do when someone dies. Right. Belenga was very supportive of his wife's choice to make the trip home. But because they didn't really have a whole lot of money, he was going to stay home, take care of the house, the children, continue to work. Makes sense. You do what you gotta do. Mm-hmm. So Noella made her reservation. She got on a jet to make the 7,500-mile trip to her native country. Upon her arrival, after the long flight, she was exhausted. The weather was hot. She was just resting up. She's doing all the things she needs to do. Mm-hmm. She goes back to her hotel room. She just wants to lie down and rest. Okay. But as she lies there resting, the hotel room phone rings, and it's Belenga. He wanted to know how she was doing, why she was already in for the night, and he told her she would feel better if she went outside and got some fresh air after being in, you know, in one place for so many hours. Okay. So she decided to take his advice and decided to go outside and stretch her legs and breathe some fresh air. But as soon as she opened the hotel gate, a man approached her carrying a gun and told her not to scream. And he forces her into a waiting car where she's in the center seat between two men. Okay. They take her off and they're driving for half an hour or a little more. And the car stops and the men took Noella inside a building where they tied her to a chair. The men started peppering her with questions questions asking what had she done to the man to make him want her dead she was really confused she said she had no enemies and that there was no one who would want her dead they called her a fool and they called their customer right in front of her they said that they had her they were ready to kill her and they told the customer where they were going to dump her body noella was devastated when it was her husband's voice on the phone that she heard reply kill her so to noella's surprise The leader of the hitmen said to her they were not going to kill her, but that she had been very stupid and blind. He said that Belenga had actually paid the deposit on her hit way back in November, and it's now February. So So this was before the death. He paid, yeah. He paid the deposit. Okay. He paid the deposit months before he even. Her heart must have just sunk the second she heard his voice. She said that she felt like she was going to pass out. She was just devastated. 
That hurts. So it's been three months since he paid the deposit. So he's wanted her dead for many, many months now. So he had been planning to have her killed, and she had no idea all this time. So the hitmen, although they had no intention of actually murdering Noella because they happened to be friends of her brother's, okay, so. called Belenga back and told him that the fee had gone up. And now they required another 3400 Australian dollars okay. to finish the hit and dump her body. And he paid it because he thinks this is still going to go through. So they're so, just robbing him for all he's worth. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, okay. exactly. Because he's a bad person. Right. I mean... <laughs> they probably are bad people too, but at least they worked out for a while at this time. Bad people with a slight moral compass. <laughs> well, or at least they, you know, didn't want to kill their friend's Had sister. Had a connection to her. Yeah. <laughs> So at the same time, Noella's brother had gone to her hotel and she wasn't there. He couldn't find her. He doesn't know anything about all this. So they didn't even call her brother and be like, hey, yo, we have your sister. No, they didn't. So he, he had started getting worried and he's like, look, in order for me to go to the police and get an investigation started, because, you know, there's a lot of corrupt police departments in countries well everywhere yeah but especially in (laughs) developing countries well because there's just a way for them to make money and so they they, they, stay in charge of everything yeah they're opportunists and Mm -hmm. so noella's brother had called belanga told him about the need for the money and he was gonna have to have 550 bucks in order to pay the police to start an investigation and Belenga, he knew that that wasn't going to help because they weren't going to find her. But he has to act like he's concerned about her. And so he says, oh, of course. And so he wires the brother the money in order to look concerned about his wife's whereabouts. The hitmen held Noella captive for another two days, after which they let her out by the side of a road and gave her a memory card, which had all the phone calls for the planning of the murder and the receipts for the money transfers from her husband to them. Mm-hmm. So now she's not only not going to be murdered, she's also got the evidence against her husband. Okay. So back home, meanwhile, her husband now has passed on the news to her friends and family about her tragic passing and a terrible accident, and they're all in morning so they planned her funeral and on the day of her funeral all these people are streaming into the house all day long wish him well share his grief and more than a few of them donated money to help him defray his expenses and help him take time off from work to grieve mm, the balls on this guy i (laughs) yeah but noella had called her pastor on the telephone before she left burundi on her way home Mm -hmm. she explained what she had just been through and although the pastor was horrified that belenga was even capable of doing such a thing he agreed to help Noella confront her husband at her house, at her funeral. <laughs> <laughs> so on the day of her funeral, when the last car of visitors was driving away from the curb, Noella stepped out of the car that had brought her back to her home. Belenga was still out there saying goodbye to the people who had just left. He sees her, just goes, like, freaks out that he's seeing his dead Why wife. Why ghost, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> And immediately looks terrified. He just wasn't sure at all what to do. He screamed. He asked if it was really her. And then he starts howling to her about how sorry he was. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry this happened. So not even, you're still alive. Thank God. Like, I'm so happy to see you. Just, I'm sorry right off the bat. That just. Yeah, because he knew she knew. Okay. All right. He knew she knew because there's no (laughs) way she'd be alive if she didn't know. 
Unless they got the wrong girl. Like, I don't know. <laughs> so Noella summoned the police who sent Belinga away immediately, away from the house. They're like, you can't be here. Right. And later, after she had shown them the evidence that she had, they later arrested him. His excuse, which would be lame, even if it were the truth, was that he thought she was going to leave him for another man. Victim blame much? That's not true. He didn't think that. This woman was head over heels in love and with this that's man. That's not even an excuse. It's not. Okay, then let her and go find someone else. (laughs) Seriously. So they did press charges. He did go to trial and he was sentenced to nine years in prison. But, you know, that takes us back to this argument about tempting and failing to kill someone. And they treat it like you didn't do that that bad a thing. But nevertheless, Noella said she still hears his voice in her head saying, kill her. She still has that nightmare. How do you ever trust somebody again? Like, I I I can't imagine. I don't know. She said, the man she loved is now the voice in her nightmares. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but the patriarchal attitude of many of the African immigrants in her community had many people blaming her for getting Belenga convicted. So not only did she lose her husband, she lost the love, she lost her marriage, and now all her friends in her community are blaming her for this. In what world? Because it's patriarchal and it's her fault. It's like when people go and it's like Brock Turner, you know? Oh, well, you ruined his swimming career. How dare you? I didn't ruin it. He ruined it when he decided to rape this person. That was him. That's exactly right. I don't want... Okay. So, so things are not easy for her. She's now raising eight children all by herself. But Noella is strong. She is determined and she's going to be okay. She told reporters, this is a quote, Mm -hmm. I will stand up like a strong woman. My situation, my past life, that is gone. I'm starting a new life now. And if you see these photos of her, she just looks like a radiant, beautiful, strong woman. And I'll post these on Instagram. I just, I admire her so much. You can see the strength just in her face. Like, you really can. You can. And, I mean, she was pretty young when this happened to her, you know? So... So to just have that kind of fortitude and strength of spirit to just move on. And so with eight children, she took on his kids too? Even His after child had... had been murdered by the people. Oh, that's right. Okay, never mind. But... Yeah. No, she had five children prior to their relationship. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So, so that is the story of Noella and Belenga. And I, like I said, I'll put some photos of them on Instagram. And you should see their, their wedding photo. They just look so happy. And... How, you know, how things go so wrong. Yeah. Don't know anybody anymore. (laughs) No, really, seriously. So, um. I mean, thank God it happened the way it happened, but it's just still so upsetting. Well, yeah, so much could have gone wrong for her and everything that could have gone the way in her favor did. Just the circumstances were exactly right where she got out of this, but oh my God. Well, she must have treated people right in order for them to not want to hurt her. Be like, yeah, I want to keep her alive. We're just going to rob this dude, like a fool but yeah although probably in retrospect the money that he paid them would have been her money after he went to jail so she paid them but nevertheless she came out of it alive that's all i have yeah (laughs) (laughs) i don't have any fun facts for you this week i'm very sorry what fun are you i had a i had a conversation earlier this week and i was talking to a structural engineer Mm -hmm. that i was trying to tell him what a project was about and he hadn't started working on it yet and he said well what what do you know of that needs to be done? And I said, well, we have some cable bundles that are going to have to be supported on a T-pole. Mm-hmm. And a T-pole is just like a stick that comes out of the ground with a crossbar, and then you support the cables across it. Kind of like a telephone wire? 
Sort of. Yeah, okay. only there's a big flat bar across the top, and they, it supports the cables so they don't droop down to the ground. And he said, well, how big are these cable bundles? And with all the true crime I've been reading lately, oh, the first thought I had was, well, if you took about seven bodies and laid them on the ground next to each other <laughs> and then stacked it too high, it's about that big. And I, I, there was just silence on the other end of the of the phone because he was like, "Did you just use dead bodies to describe the size of cable bundles?" <laughs> and he said, "You could also use that for weight. You know, like you assume that a, you know a body is like thirty pounds per right, yeah, <laughs> per foot." <laughs> it's funny how often we just in true crime world, and everybody listening will probably relate. Just casually say something that's. Very disturbing to somebody else. But, but to us, it's just, like, casual. Like, when I, I bought my car, which I have a Honda Civic, and I was with my dad and my brother at the time, who was, like, 10. <laughs> but I remember I went to the car salesman. I went and checked out the trunk, and my dad goes, that's a really big trunk. And I whispered to him, yeah, you could fit, like, four bodies in here if you really adjusted them right. And, and the car Six sales- if your mom's a space planner. Yeah, well, that's what I was, I was like, trying to figure out if you really t- tuck the knees right up to your neck, um, that kind of thing. And he was so embarrassed that I said this to the car salesman. And, <laughs> and now I have a crime pop gas, so it all comes back around in the end, I guess. <laughs> now you just have to find that true, cro- that true car salesman. Okay, <laughs> scary. I think I'm a little brain dead today. I know. We need food. Well, find us on Instagram. Find us on Instagram at True Crime BNB. Send us messages and requests. I'll also come there and see the photos that we post. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I've started putting up some uh, slides that I'm making of a little series of Imagine. I'm calling them the, the Imagine slides. Kind of take you into the victim's perspective for a minute. Right. What are they experiencing right before a, a typical event from different serial killers? And right. So, so far, they seem like they're going over pretty well. Yeah, check them out, guys. I mean, I live with her and I'm still a little bit creeped out by what she's written so (laughs) check it out let us know also i'm sure she's open for requests if you want any of your serial killer that's your favorite serial killer just ask her and she'll dig in a little bit and see what your perspective (laughs) would be as a victim of them so there you go so i think that's we've talked long enough for today (laughs) yeah i think we're worn out and we've probably worn you out too so take care see you next week bye bye